welcome to um, St. Luke's Sunday Forum. We are trying on a new format this morning where we are doing conversation partners. And I have the great joy of introducing our St. Luke's conversation partner, Adelaide Steedley. She is a member of St. Luke's and works on the Faith and Advocacy Network as the team lead for economic equity program. Her career is in affordable housing and community development, and she currently works at Atlanta Housing, co-chairing the Sustainability Task Force, working to center low-income communities in the sustainability and resiliency movements through healthier, more efficient housing green jobs, and better planning. So welcome, Adelaide. If you wouldn't mind introducing our guest speaker. Um, that's great. Thank you very much. Um, uh, it's great to be here, and thanks for inviting me to do this. I just want to say, if it doesn't work out, we can start to question Winnie's judgment now. <laughs> it might be the end times of this idea. <laughs> So I apologize, uh, Kyle, I don't have your uh, bio with me. I read it, um, and it's very interesting. And in fact, you were just telling me that you used to um, attend the Pasadena Church and, and has a very good rela uh, close relationship with Ed uh, Bacon. Um, so I apologize. Why don't you give yourself a quick um, bio, Sure. and then um, I'll sort of tee up the conversation and sort of how we'll do that yeah. uh, the next 40 minutes. Well, thanks, Adelaide, and good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. I'm Kyle. Lambelay. I teach at Candler School of Theology down the road at Emory University and bring greetings from there. I also bring greetings from Holy Cross Episcopal Church, which is where I worship on Sunday morning. So uh, it's good to be with you uh, here today. So I don't know, the other things. And um, you teach? Yeah, I teach at Candler. I teach theology and ethics. Um, there's a program in justice, peace building, and conflict transformation at Candler that most of my classes fall into. Um, I'm a parent of two children. I play the banjo. Uh, <laughs> I won't subject so we'll, you to uh, that to, this Right, morning. we'll be fiddling <laughs> as the ship goes down, exactly. So I thought we might div uh, divide up uh, this morning's conversation into uh, three sort of pieces. One is, what is apocalyptic? What are we talking about? Um, particularly in the, in the framework, um, in terms of what the, what's the nature, and the second part is, what's the nature of your work for us? Um, and the third is, you know, where's the hope? Um, how does this perspective inform our faith walk? Um, so I read um, a, um, an essay that you had written, and I found some very, uh, a very interesting uh, couple of quotes that might help center sort of where Kyle um, is coming from this morning. So they argue, he writes, they argue that the environmental movement is too apocalyptic. My argument, Kyle's argument, however, is that the environmental movement is not apocalyptic enough. Sustaining the world as it is, or even changing it around the edges with hopes for reform, is to neglect the deepest resources of the apocalyptic tradition. He goes on to say, my interest is in the apocalyptic as a spiritual exercise. A practical apocalyptic rooted in the Christian tradition provides modes of living with world endings. So uh, something the Bible knows a little bit about. It's seen its share of apocalyptic endings. So. Starting off, what does apocalyptic mean, um, particularly in this context, and, and how do we recognize that we're in one? Yeah, great. Well, um, 
So we're here at the end of the season of creation that I don't know what y'all have done here at St. Luke's, but in many congregations across the Roman Catholic and Episcopal Anglican traditions, um, across even uh, Eastern Orthodox traditions, uh, we've been celebrating this season during the month of September, and it concludes with this uh, October 4th, which is tomorrow, feast day of St. Francis. So uh, when Elizabeth called and asked me to think about presenting, I I thought I might talk about uh, environmental challenges we're facing and some recent research that I've been doing under the title of eco-apocalypse, which can bring to mind, uh, you know, the wild-eyed street preacher. Um, And there's a great New Yorker uh, uh, comic that maybe you've seen of uh, two people squared off against one another. One is a harried-looking sort of Old Testament prophet um, who says the, the end is nigh for religious reasons on his sign. And then on the other side is a kind of bookish looking older uh, uh, librarian uh, woman who uh, has a sign that says the end is nigh for ecological reasons. <laughs> and that kind of typifies our time um, as I look out, as I see what is going on. Um, you know, we just had this uh, new IPCC report, the International panel on uh, climate change, or intergovernmental panel on climate change, IPCC, it's an organ of the United Nations. They just produce, they're in the process of uh, producing their AR6 um, report, their sixth report, and it's a distillation of all the best consensus on scientific um, understandings of what it is we're facing uh, as a planet. And what they said, I'll just read this, a couple of quotes from it. It says, it is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean, and land. Widespread and rapid changes in the atmosphere, ocean, cryosphere, and biosphere have occurred. So note the tense of those, um, that statement. It's not about something that will happen in the future. It's something that has already occurred something that we're living through currently. Um, They said more, another quote, human-induced climate change is already affecting many weather and climate extremes in every region across the globe. And we know this. We know this when we look out at the evening news, um, whether it's the uh, hurricanes in the Gulf or wildfires in uh, California. I think one in eight acres in California have burned in the last 10 years. Uh, The Dixie Fire is has burned almost a million acres. That's like more than the square footage of Rhode Island. Um, You look out at that and it feels apocalyptic, right? It feels like the end of the world. Um, And certainly a lot of our discourse moves in that way. A lot of our politicians and activists and um, pundits, they talk about this as an apocalyptic scenario. so for me, when I look out and I see, that, see what's going on and I hear that discourse, it raises, as a theologian, uh, my own apocalyptic sensibilities. And um, there are some folks in the environmental movement, um, like Michael Schellenberger, who I write about in that essay, who wants to say, this is a problem. Like, we don't need this wild-eyed speculation about the future. This actually distracts us from the hard work that we have ahead of us. Um, but I want to suggest that actually we're missing, if, if it's only doomsday prophecies that we get from the apocalyptic, we're missing something really important theologically about what apocalypse is all about. 
So part of what I'm trying to do in that essay and what I've, maybe we can talk about here today is how to retrieve the apocalyptic theological tradition as a resource for how do we live within endings? How do we live when things are ending? And that's, I think, uh, apropos to what we're, what we're going through. So, What are some of the examples of, of facing end times in the Bible? We, when mm -hmm. you and I chatted, you mm -hmm. mentioned several yeah. um, that, are, that, that we have grown up with, you know, stories and myths that we've grown up with that we know about. So other folks before us have faced ap um, apocalyptic times. Right. Um, what does that teach us? Yeah, so apocalypse uh, in its etymology just means to uncover or to unveil. Um, it doesn't necessarily have all these doomsday. Yeah, that's a very um, light touch on that <laughs> meaning now. <laughs> but it's a, it's a genre of literature that emerges in the periods of exile that the, during which the Hebrew people are not in their home. They're, they've been exiled mm -hmm. from the land of Israel. And so the book of Daniel is kind of a paradigmatic example of apocalyptic literature that emerges in, during the Babylonian exile. And so Daniel's there. You probably remember the stories of Daniel in the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are stories of uh, people who are uh, in exile. They're in a land that is not their home, and they are uh, searching for and hoping in a different world, a world that is not immediately present to them. They're hoping for a return to Israel. They're hoping that they can practice their uh, worship. And the political environment in which they're in, an empire, won't allow them to do that. So you read some of like uh, the later chapters of Daniel 7, 8, 9, get into this apocalyptic genre in which a uh, otherworldly being is revealing some transcendent vision of a different world. And hmm. it's pretty uh, wild. <laughs> the symbols are pretty out there, and it's very difficult, actually, for us where we're sitting to access what's happening there. But I think the kernel that we can draw from that is these are images and imaginations of a different world, an other world, not this world. So you can imagine for them, oppressed people <coughs> in an empire, um, dispossessed in, important, in uh, significant ways, hoping for a world that's not this world. So that's kind of where that, uh, this, this uh, literature emerges in the context of empire for dispossessed people. Um, the book of Daniel is a great example, but really you can see apocalyptic strands throughout scripture. Um, you can think of, say, Isaiah 11, the lion lays down with the lamb, and a child shall lead them. We look at that as Christians as a kind of uh, anticipation of Jesus's reign, and, I, and that's, I think, theologically fine and good, but it's also, this is a um, literature for a people who are under threat of violence and empire and trying to imagine what could the world, what's another way we could imagine the world. Um, and that, that thread continues through uh, Mark 13, is often known as the little apocalypse, um, and Jesus uh, gives a kind of apocalyptic vision of what is to come. He says, no one knows the day or the hour. So that's an important injection in our apocalyptic speculations. It's not about the time of the end, um, and often this is when our apocalyptic speculations go off the rails, is when we say, it's gonna come in 12 years, or next 
uh, Y2K or, you know, that's not what uh, scriptural apocalyptic is really about. It's about a mode of seeing this world anew, seeing the ways in which God's reign is breaking in, even now, even in systems of domination um, and empire. So that thread, and then, of course, the uh, sort of urtext of apocalypse is the apocalypse of John or Revelation, um, which again, if you read that text, it's wild. The, the uh, symbols and the images are, are out of this world. But that's the whole point. That's the whole point. How, do we, how can a people who are living in, uh, the, under the occupation of Rome imagine a world otherwise? So I think this imaginative uh, task is, you read the quote earlier about the spiritual exercise of apocalypse. Is it's not really about um, when will the end come. It's about how do we live within endings? Mm. What are the practices that we can engage in within world endings? And for those of us for whom the world is quite comfortable, people of some privilege, apocalyptic wasn't written for us. And it's kind of hard to access, I think, for that reason. But if the world's not working well for you, if you are in a situation where you're uh, beset by violence and oppression on all sides, then hoping for the end of that world is a grace, is something that uh, we would receive with uh, great uh, enthusiasm. We're, we're on Wednesday nights, we're reading um, John, Mitchum, uh, John Meacham's uh, life of John Lewis, and John Lewis and thousands of others were actually working hard and praying for certain end times um, in the United States mm-hmm. and generations before him. Um, while we were, while some of us and some of our families were totally fine with the status quo, there were millions of people living among us that were praying for certain end times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, for every empire, there are others praying for end times. Mm-hmm. So in our work in coming to grips and being proud of and, and acknowledging John Lewis as a hometown hero, how does this apocalyptic theory that, um, viewpoint help inform the way some of us um, in our congregation working towards social justice, mm. for example. How does that help inform um, the work that we're hoping for, the work that we're doing? Yeah, I laughed a, when you said the the, um, the part about nibbling around the edges with hopes for reform. And some days it feels like that. Mm. It feels like we're nibbling at the edges. And there are a lot of us really talking about digging in and doing the hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, and how would your work uh, help inform us in yeah. doing that? Oh, such a rich question. Um, I was uh, reading the collect earlier um, for today. Most high, omnipotent, good Lord, grant unto thy people grace to renounce gladly the vanities of this world. Following the way of blessed Francis, we may for love of thee delight in thy whole creation with perfectness of joy through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. That's a sort of archaic um, prayer, but this line about grant unto thy people grace to renounce gladly the vanities of the world. That's drawn from, of course, Francis's own biographical experience of renunciation, the son of a, a silk merchant who, um, in a, uh, the sort of medieval flair, rejects his uh, inheritance and uh, lives a life of, um, as an itinerant preacher and teacher. Um, but there's a renunciation there that I think is at the heart of what it means to practice the spiritual exercise of the apocalyptic 
So renouncing the world, renouncing the world. This can feel um, troubling. Yeah, that's hard to do. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to encourage a theological understanding of what we mean by world, um, our scriptural understanding, Mm -hmm. is uh, that the world is a site of violence and um, of division, of divisions of race, of class, of nature, of gender, and it's inescapable. This world that we, in which we live and move, this world in which our relationships are structured and uh, with one another, this world is, is violent. Um, and we would want, I think, we should hope in the renunciation of the world. So that doesn't mean a renunciation of the earth. I'm making a distinction here between the world as the uh, social imaginary, the political economy in which we, we move, so that's the world, but the earth, creation, is good. Creation is a gift from God, and the world actually prevents our reception of that good gift. So hmm. I'm slowly getting back to an answer to your uh, good no, question yeah, of um, what, do we, what would renunciation of the world look like uh, for us? Hmm. For those of us who are hoping, not in this world, not in the world of division and violence, but are hoping for uh, new relationships, relationships of mutuality and care, for relationships of real reciprocity, um, even as we've inherited relationships of violence and domination. Uh, the renunciation of the world is to open oneself's in, oneself in vulnerability to the other. To, so some of the practices that I have in mind are practices like lament, lamenting the world that is, that has so divided us. Um, uh, Conversion, conversion to the other, to relationship, to the earth, uh, like following on St. Francis. Mm -hmm. Um, Care, practices of care. Um, If we are so bound up with the world, with um, acquisition, with uh, committed to our relationships of domination, we can't care adequately for one another. So if we renounce that world, then we, we open ourselves to the possibility of new forms of care. So it's, it's, um, not, it's indifference to the context that we're living in as a way of arming ourselves and preparing ourselves for the shift and for the creation of a new, more just, more... Um, a world more like what Jesus talked about and what Paul and others talked about in the world. Yeah, so um, as an as so it's a it's an end of a viewpoint. It's an end of a relationship with the world. Mm-hmm. Um and then the the steps and the processes and the orientations that you're describing is the ways that we prepare ourselves for uh living in a new world. I think mm-hmm. one of the things that we talked about over the last year in terms of um, dealing with the pandemic and all of us being scattered to Zoom calls and and that sort of thing was a pandemic as portal. Mm. Um, And this seems to really fit with that. So it's using the scenario and the situation of the collapse really of all those relationships and all those networks and all those ways of being, uh, getting up in the morning, running to work, working, dashing home to pick up children, to take care of pets, to do whatever we got to do, you know, but, uh, clocking our vacations and that sort of thing, all got thrown out the window. 
um, we didn't choose it. It got thrust upon us. Um, and so that apocalypse, I guess, in a way, um, was an apocalypse of sorts. So a lot of us have been working together in this church and in congregations around the world, I imagine, to try and prepare, take advantage of that opportunity, that pandemic is portal. How would your work maybe talk a little bit more about those practices and mm -hmm. how our work, and I just wanna say too, there's a microphone in the room. Um, and so I hope that you guys are, you know, sort of these ideas are kind of spinning in your head a little bit. Um, and if you've got questions for um, our professor here, <laughs> um, he would, we'd love to, to hear those questions and then just take advantage of the microphone that's sitting right there. Yeah. Um, Adelaide, so you use the phrase indifference or the term indifference. So I know we, we want to talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah. Indifference can mean two different things, um, both of which are important in the conversation. Indifference can mean a kind of apathy toward the other. Um, and in class this week with my students, we're reading Laudato Si, which is the uh, Pope Francis encyclical from a few years back. It's a beautiful document of um, both theological and uh, political analysis of where it is we stand, and so I commend it to you. But he uses indifference in two ways. Uh, one is this way of the, the globalization of indifference, the apathy that we have toward mm. one another, which is a real problem. But the other way he uses it is in this Ignatian sense. Pope Francis, of course, is a Jesuit, and the Jesuits were founded by a Spanish, 16th century Spanish priest, uh, Ignatius of Loyola, and Ignatius uses the term indifference to talk about a kind of, uh, uh, I'll, I'll characterize it as a kind of apocalyptic sensibility hmm. um, of orientation toward the world. He says, we should be indifferent to all created things so that whether in health or sickness, whether in uh, wealth or poverty, whether in uh, good times or bad, we can turn toward two things, love of God, and love of neighbor. So we're indifferent to created things in order that we can attend to these two primary things, mm. which is love of God and love of neighbor. And I think that's one of those uh, practices, one of those uh, apocalyptic practices that we can turn to is a kind of indifference, not an apathy toward others, but indifference in the sense of whether wealth or poverty, whether um, uh, health or sickness, that we are turned always to these two primary tasks. Can I finish? I don't want to interrupt. No, yeah, <laughs> we please. have a question. Amazing. Um, thank you. This is wonderful. Adelaide, I think it's so great that you're up there. Um, my name is Winnie, and I have a question. Um, the category of creation versus the category of the world or the ways of the world, I think are really confusing for most Christians. So one. Mm. Could you tell us about those different categories? Say a little bit more about that. You yeah. said a little bit. And also, um, on this topic of indifference, um, as a preacher, um, sometimes we hear that we are too political um, in speaking to exactly what you're speaking to. Can mm. you, um, because engaging um, you know, true things um, can also connect us to things that our political party is talking about, and, and the polis, right, the real concerns yeah. of people. Um, so how do you think about that as a theologian? How do you think about that for church? Thank you. Great. Thank you, Reverend Winnie. Okay. We've got, uh, <laughs> we've only got 15 minutes to talk about that. 
couple easy questions. But those are absolutely, I think a phrase that you used yesterday was, you know, one's relationship to responsibility. And I, like, I just laughed and I was like, yeah, I'm having that conversation with my 18-year-old every day. <laughs> His relationship to responsibility, which I think is part of how we divide up that world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, well, on the topic of creation, um, I think that one of our primary tasks currently um, is to learn again how to be creatures, how to be what uh, the origin stories from Genesis uh, describe humans as dirt with breath. We are dirt with breath. And what, is, what would it look like to receive yeah. that again, that good word that we are mere creatures? So much of our environmental discourse is actually about how we can reassert our domination over nature and control natural processes. And what I think the uh, apocalyptic invites us to is to recognize that we, we, are, we are creatures, we are recipients of gifts. And it's, I, I love um, the way that St. Francis att uh, attunes us to our receptivity of the gifts. We are dependent in so many ways on things that we don't control. Um, water, air, the earth beneath us, um, and Francis in his Canticle of the Sun anthropomorphizes all of those and as brothers and sisters that are uh, gifts to us from God. So I think recapturing a sense of the goodness of creation we are, means in some ways uh, removing ourselves as idols or as the creators of our world. We are not creators. We are creatures, we are recipients of gifts. So I think that's an important uh, distinction. Um, and the, I think that the world prevents us from that kind of receptivity. The world, at least as I'm describing, yeah. as I think uh, it emerges within scripture, it prevents us from receiving those good gifts because we see the world, or see the earth through the lens of the world as a site of domination as a place for us to extract resources, uh, to um, uh, expand our, our reach and our dominion. And that's a, that's a deeply pathological way of orienting oneself to the world, or to use a more theological term, that's sinful, and we need to renounce those ways of orienting ourselves. Um, the other question too, I think Winnie was asking is, isn't, how are we, how, are we do, how can we do this in a, in a current context that doesn't sound quite so political? Mm. Um, and I'm assuming you mean sort of political with a little P too, is we, we're living in you know, pretty, pretty um, I don't wanna say division um, discourse. Um, but I am sensitive to, to that feedback that mm -hmm. um, leaders get sometimes is that just having conversations about our own reality begins to sound political somehow. Mm -hmm. And how does your framework help us see this more universally and maybe take out some of that, um, some of that talk that starts to sound pretty political? Hmm. Well, I'm not sure I can help you on that to remove the politics. Um, my sense is that theology uh, from top to bottom is political. Um, think mm. about some of the words that we use to describe our um, tradition. So um, liturgia, liturgy, 
So it's a political term that's drawn from the uh, uh, Roman context of a work, a public work, a work for the people. Um, ecclesia, uh, it's a, a Greek term um, for a, a public assembly that's borrowed from a political context and then applied to the church. That's, so you'll hear terms like ecclesiology, that's the study of the church, and it means the church as a politics, as a, as a body. Um, sacramentum, sacrament, it means a, a military oath. Um, Basileia, the wow. kingdom of God, <laughs> uh, again, yeah. drawn from a political context. All of these terms are political. And for whatever reason, I think we need to plumb these depths, for whatever reason, the early church, when they were searching for what are the terms that adequately describe our community, they selected all these political terms. So now when we say, oh, we need to keep politics out of the pulpit or uh, we shouldn't go into that direction, I think, well, that's what the early, early Christians did. That's what for 2,000 years we've been debating and arguing about. Um, I think our faith is inherently political. Now, does it have to be uh, partisan or should we be signing on to a, right. the platform of our elected uh, uh, representatives? Maybe not. It, it might involve that. I'm not opposed to that. But uh, it certainly does involve making political commitments. And so the question for us, I think, is what is the politics of uh, the Christian faith? And you know, in this apocalyptic sense, what, what does renunciation of the world free us to do? Well, it frees us to attend to the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor, to use Pope Francis's language. It frees us, uh, in uh, Ignatius's language, to love of God and love of neighbor. Now that's deeply political work, and it involves a lot of hard-nosed discernment about how it is, and Adelaide, this maybe relates to your work mm -hmm. it, with the housing authority. How are we going to adequately care for, attend to the weakest and most vulnerable in our society? Mm -hmm. That's such an important question, and that's political. That involves us deliberating about the distribution of pu public goods. And that's exactly what you're doing day in and day out. And um, the indifference that I think I'm proposing would be to free you and others to exactly that kind of hard-nosed, day in, day out policy work and orient it toward love of God and love of neighbor. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think, <laughs> absolutely. I'll put that over my, well, I don't have a desk anymore, but I'll put that over my hands, <laughs> clapping for sure. Um, no, it's a great point. I mean, in the work that we're doing in a sustainability initiative is that there's a great connection between all the effort that's going into saving the earth actually is lowering the cost of operating the housing. Um, and so what's happened is in those conversations, we're sort of flipping it on its head and say, look, we're not trying to save the earth right now. We're trying to lower utility bills. We're trying mm -hmm. to lower our, our costs. And that effort is getting a lot more receptivity because we're saving taxpayer dollars. Um, the lowest of low income are now their utility bills are going down. And so they're able to spend those savings on something more sustainable, if you will. Um, and making that case says, if we solve the problem now, we won't have to go in five or 10 years 
and sort of retrofit everything we've done again because the technology is changing and the world is changing so fast. And in a way, what you're talking about, the advantage of looking at this from an apocalyptic lens is we can make those changes now before they're forced on us mm -hmm. because things have, have gotten out of hand. And I think one of the eye-opening perspectives that you've brought to the work is the fact that it's our sort of ego, our arrogance that we are creators that has got us in this pickle in the first place, mm -hmm. you know, and that the world is going to keep, we're not saving the earth. The earth is going to go around the sun for another billion years. This is really about saving ourselves and saving the world that we're living in mm -hmm. um, and, and being able to do that. And I, I, I think that it sounds like what this work is proposing is to go ahead and claim the apocalyptic nature of the time that we're in. And maybe folks like John Lewis give us the guidance to be able to say, it's okay to pray for the end of certain parts of our society. In fact, some people might say that that's patriotic, you mm -hmm. know, that that's um, our responsibility as citizens of a country that is created by the will of the people um, to, to go out and do that. Mm -hmm. which kind of comes back to how do, in the conversations, how can we help you? I mean, one of the things we talked about was you're sort of formulating these ideas. What are some of the questions that you have um, when you throw these, um, you know, hair, hair on fire uh, uh, <laughs> phrases out there? What are some of the things you want us to do? What are some mm -hmm. of the things that, how we can help your perspective? And the, what are some of the questions that you have about the work that you're doing? Well, the question I'm asking with my students, um, I teach a course by the same title, Eco-Apocalypse at Candler School And of four people show up. Yeah. like, I can't deal. <laughs> <laughs> but is, what is the good news in the midst, amidst eco-apocalypse? Yes. So I think there's a certain um, balm, actually, to a realistic look at what it is we're facing. And there are students who are deeply um, disillusioned with the way the world is structured, and so there's a certain consolation that comes with an acknowledgement that things are not point. working well. But I think there's the further question of, okay, this world is not working. Where do we place our hope? Where is hope amidst this um, world endings? And I think in order to answer that question, we look to those who have already lived through the end of the world. So we look to scripture. We talked a little bit about that earlier. Uh, scriptural sources of uh, apocalyptic imagination. And we can also look to our history, to um, slaves who lived through the Middle Passage, whose world was destroyed. Um, there's a historian, Gerald Horn, who talks about settler colonialism as a kind of apocalypse. And that's the, the past that we're living within. Um, and you can look to uh, indigenous peoples who have lived through the literal ending of their world. What do they do? How do they live? How do they endure within the end of the world? For those of us who come from, as I do, a uh, background of immense privilege, there's resources and wisdom to be found by turning to those sources. And for me, when my world mostly works pretty well, um, to learn yeah, it's not working well for other folks. So I think, you know, the big task for us is to attend to the, uh, back to this Ignatian uh, idea of indifference, love of God, love of neighbor, 
learning to listen to those who are already dispossessed for how wow. they are uh, cultivating hope in the mm. midst of this. Wow. And um, that's a hard, it's not a, it's not a, um, easy truth and easy consolation. It's an embarrassing truth. But it's, it's like, I think it is a graced consolation. Yeah. And that's what figures like St. Francis and others in our tradition help us to, to recognize that there is grace and consolation in this path of renunciation. Um, and it's, it's uh, it, I would feel like I was cheating you if I didn't tell you that truth about <laughs> our tradition and about the world as we are in it. Amen. Absolutely. Yeah, amen. <laughs> Horace and I talk about being able to shout amen in church. Um, and how do the students, you're, you know, you're in a milieu with a whole bunch of young people, you know, staring, you know, I read once that, that one of the reasons why you have a slow response to, to climate change is because the average age of the senators, the people that could do so, is 64. And so it's not an existential crisis for them, literally, and mm -hmm. they didn't grow up with it. Your, the students in your classroom um, and, you know, your children, my kid, those of us that have children and grandchildren, um, it's a real gap in understand in a world orientation um, that they are looking at the world coming to an end. Um, do your students are they grabbing onto this? And, mm -hmm. and well, let me just ask: How are they? How are they doing? How are the children doing? Are they going to save? Is great? You know, are they going to save us from ourselves? From our our old view? You can't. You know, it's the way people were raised that yeah. the world is there for us to do whatever we need to get done and the ends justify the means right and we're living with the end of that right and the the challenge for our time i think is how do you carry on when your actions don't matter this is the sort of difficult sure. determinism of our moment is that we could do everything right right now we could do everything right and the climate would still be haywire it, we would still be warm on a warming trend so what do we do when that's the case? Wow. What do we do when what we do doesn't matter? And that's the, that's the scenario that my students face, that I face, that we all face uh, here Whether together. we know it or not. And I think the, res the hopeful response is we lament. We lament. We turn, we convert, we turn to one another. We do things that are good in and of themselves and that won't complete the work that needs to be done because nothing we can do will ultimately complete itself. So we return again as recipients of grace, of recipients of the good gifts of creation and uh, receive those gifts because it's good to do so. I, a few weeks ago, I, um, my spouse, Nicole Lambelet, who's a priest at uh, Epiphany, Church of the Epiphany, organized a uh, uh, creek cleanup at Clyde Shepherd Park, which is in Medlock Park, uh, with a local uh, Muslim worshiping community, the Ismali community, and it was wow. really cool. It was great to be out there getting wet in the sand and shoes filled with mud and pulling out tires and uh, plastic bags and old beer bottles from the creek. The reality is that's not going to save us. That action is not going to turn the tides on climate change or species decline 
or any number of the terrible uh, planetary threats that we're facing, but it was good. It was a good task to do, and it was good to remember that this river provides us with water that we drink, that we need to survive, and that we have a responsibility. Even if we cannot save the world, which we cannot, we're not a colleague of mine at uh, Candler, Carol Newsom, uh, has written that we're just not in the register of fix anymore. Mm -hmm. We're not going to fix this. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, in the meantime, we can turn to one another we can care for creation, we can be recipients of God's good grace, and we can love things that are dying. This is a task for us both on an existential level, all of us are dying, (laughs) we will die, and knowing that uh, can be freeing, can be a grace, but also there are aspects of our world that are dying. There are species that will never return, and that's, again, a cause for uh, grief, lament, but also for care. And it's worth loving those things, even things that are dying, even people that are dying, even worlds that are dying. So again, I think this Ignatian sensibility of turning to love of God and neighbor as a kind of through line, if I could return to that, I think that's our task. I think that's what gives students hope in the midst of the reality of what we're facing. And um, I see in them uh, not, I don't really have hope that we will be saved, but I do have hope in uh, our uh, turning to one another and being, again, dirt with breath, creatures before an ever-creating, crucified and resurrecting God. Wow. Yeah. That was beautiful. We can love things that are dying. Mm. You know. Well, thank you very. I don't. I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> that was wonderful. Thank you so much. Good luck. Good luck. I was just going to say good luck with your work, and I hope we can bring him back and sort of update us a little bit more on what the students are thinking and what we need to be doing. Yes. Maybe on. Yeah. We have much more to glean from <laughs> Dr. Lamblett. Um, And thank you for being here. And now I invite everyone to join us in worship, where we will continue to talk about St. Francis and see what we can glean from him. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much.